Everybody Googles everything, especially potential customers or employers, and a business or personal online reputation can make or break you. If negative search results or reviews are impacting you, Webamax is here to help. Our proven process restores your online reputation quickly and effectively, and it matters. Don't let negative results control your narrative. Visit GoWebamax.com and fill out a brief confidential form to see how we can help. Remember, if you aren't paying attention to your online reputation, someone else is. GoWebamax.com before history is written it's played before it's frozen in time it's fought one shift at a time before it's etched in silver it's carved in ice what happens next will last forever the Stanley Cup Final on ABC and ESPN Plus begins Saturday. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Now's the time to save 30% on wedding jewelry. Only on BlueNile.com. Make sure your wedding ring is the one with your pick of diamond and lab-grown diamond bands. All hand-finished and graded for excellence. Or surprise her with something blue she'll love for life, like a stunning pair of sapphire earrings. Blue Nile's jewelry experts are available 24-7 to help, from fit questions to style advice. Right now, get up to 30% off at BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. Hello, welcome to Cubs PS Plus, a Northside numbers game, a weekly podcast that dives headfirst into the analysis of hot topics driving Chicago Cubs baseball. I'm your host, Mike Waller, a lifelong Cub fan, full-time baseball stat nerd, and sometime youth baseball coach. Cubs PS Plus is now proud to be part of the Bleacher Bunch Productions group on the Fans First Sports Network, joining great shows like the Sun Ranto Show, Cup of Cubby Blue, and now Baseball Rabbit Hole. The Bleacher Bunch Network is available wherever you get your podcasts, and Cubs PS Plus is always available, ad-free, to Patreon supporters at patreon.com slash Plus, where you can support the show and always find a variety of benefits starting as low as a dollar a month. In addition to the podcast feeds, you can also find me on Twitter, or X, Instagram, TikTok, Threads, Blue Sky, and YouTube, all at Cubs PS Plus, a spin on the baseball metric OPS Plus. Love the pod or hate it, please drop a review wherever it is you find your podcasts. If you've done that, thank you so much. Maybe you can share an episode with a friend. Welcome to episode 66. Now that the episode count is high enough that there are very few players who have worn the number, I'd go Rafael Ortega here, I'm going to start mixing in some interesting stats, which makes this the Sammy Sosa episode of this podcast in honor of his 66 home runs crushed in his historic 1998 home run battle with Mark McGuire. With Cubs Con in the rearview mirror and Cubs moves still coming along very slowly, this week is a mailbag episode. Thanks to all who submitted questions, there were a lot of really good ones, including questions about prospects, trades, projections, and a lot of attention on Christopher Morrell. Are you ready? I'm ready. Here we go. I'm excited for today's episode. 
It's been about two weeks since I've recorded. I went to Cubs convention, came back with some sort of bubonic plague that's taken me down for the last week. My voice still is not 100% there, but at least I'm over most of the sore throat, cough, stuffiness, general hell I've been going through for the last week. Thrilled to be back talking about baseball. Um, Not a lot has happened. Um, Basically, the day I recorded last time, the Cubs traded for Michael Bush. We'll talk about him some today, so I won't get into that trade now. Um, Cubs convention was a lot of fun. I kind of recounted my experience on the Sun Ranto show last week. So if you heard that, you know, you kind of got my thoughts, but Cubs convention was a lot of fun. It was kind of what I expected, but I also had never done it before. So it was all kind of new. I think I definitely want to go back this year. I went for all sessions. So I sat and listened to the, the hitting talks and the 84 team and the pitching and the opening ceremonies and played bingo and did all the things. I did not spend as much time maybe as I would have liked to just roam the exhibitions, go to some player meet and greets, that kind of thing. So, you know, next year, hopefully I make it back and next year I'll mix things up a little bit. But today, as I advertised on Facebook and a lot of you guys responded, I want to do a mailbag episode. There's not a ton going on with the Cubs. We still have the, are they going to sign Bellinger or won't they? We still don't know who that last, I assume they're going to sign one more reliever. That market has started going now with, Robert Stevenson, Brett Suter, Aroldis Chapman, and others coming off the board. Josh Hader going going to the Josh Hader going to the Astros. Yes, the Astros. Luckily, this is a Cubs podcast, not an Astros podcast. But I asked you guys for questions, and I got a lot of good ones. And I don't know how long this is going to take. I haven't done one of these, so we're going to dive right in. I did kind of group them together. There are some questions that have some overlap, so. This way we, I can talk about it and not have too much repeat. So with that, we'll jump in. First question comes from David Berger, who submitted the question on Facebook. How do you think the Christopher Morrell situation will be resolved? I haven't seen any sign that he's played passable first base in the winter leagues, and they just picked up a better third baseman. That's a really good question, and it's one that's, you know, Christopher Morrell has kind of been outside of, you know, are they going to get Otani, are they going to sign Bellinger? Of the guys who are still on the team, he's kind of been the centerpiece of all discussion for this offseason. He's been brought up in a million trade rumors. He doesn't seem to have a position, but at the same time, he did play a lot of third base in the Winter League. They said he was working at first base a lot. I believe him. There's no reason to lie about it. But he didn't play first base in any games, which, you know, that's the Dominican League. So it could be for a lot of reasons. It could be there was another guy playing that only played first base. Could be that he wasn't looking good. So it's hard to say for sure. But I think for me, I mentioned the Michael Bush trade. So let's kind of get into that first. Like that's who David's referring to is just picking up a better third baseman. Michael Bush is a third base prospect, third base, first base from the Dodgers. They got him from the Dodgers. And I'm going to break down the trade later. That was another question. So I won't get into too much detail there. But with the Dodgers, he's a top 50 prospect. But he's blocked. I mean, that team is loaded. They've got Mookie Betts at second. They've got Freddie Freeman at first base. They've got Max Muncy at third base. There's, there's just been no place for him to play. He's come up a little bit, had a few at-bats, not much of a sample size to go on. But he's highly regarded. He's maybe kind of Matt Mervis-ish. He's got a ton of power. A little bit more positional flexibility because he can play third base as well as first base. There are some questions as to his defense. Um, a little bit better hit tool than Mervis. So... When I look at where are they going to put Morrell, one of the questions is where are they going to put Michael Bush? I mean, I think Morrell is kind of a guaranteed lock to be in the lineup and Bush isn't. Um, I don't know that Bush is necessarily going to slot in third base. I think 
when they were talking about him at Cubs convention, they talked about him at first base a lot. So it may be that they're looking at Bush to potentially play first base, which would still leave third base open. One thing I'm not sure from a lot of the back and forths, various rumor mills, all the reports is whether the Cubs are truly in on Matt Chapman. You hear sometimes that they are, sometimes that they're not. I think that's the biggest question for third base. If they go sign Matt Chapman, then definitely Morell's not playing there, and Michael Bush is probably more first base DH. But with Morell, there have been a ton of trade rumors, and I think at various points in the season, we've heard him go into Cleveland. We've heard him go into Miami for a young starting pitcher. There reportedly have been talks with Seattle. There have been there was a, there were a lot of rumors early before Tyler Glass now went to the Dodgers that Morell might be involved in a trade to the Rays. There's been speculation about the White Sox for Dylan Cease and probably more. At this point, I I listened to Jed talk about Jed said to take all those with a huge grain of salt that a lot of the reports out there have been based on absolutely nothing. I believe him to a point. I think some of them are false. I think. But I also think Morel is a guy who's really attractive as a trade candidate, right? I mean, he's 24. He's shown massive power. He's improved year over year from his first year to his second. And, you know, he's young, cost-controlled, powerful hitter, really good athlete. So, of course, he's a guy that teams are going to ask about. Um, that said, I don't think he's going to get traded this offseason at this point. I think if it was going to happen, I think it would have been earlier in the in the preseason or earlier in the offseason, and it would have been for probably a young, controlled starting pitcher. I don't think they would have traded him for a rental, but if you can get one of those young starters – that has two or three years of control left from, say, Miami, Like that's a place that could have made a lot of sense. But at this point, I don't think it's going to happen. I think he's going to get slotted in the middle of the order. I mean, there's no reason not to. He, he played last year and produced a level that you have to keep in the lineup. And Craig Council has said as much so far. He said, you know, I'm not sure where he's going to play yet, but he's a guy that definitely has to be in the lineup. So I think we're going to see him in the lineup pretty much every day somewhere. The big question is, will he be at third base Will he be kind of a utility player that kind of floats around, give guys a day off? He's athletic enough, can play second, play third. Depending on how he's looked, he could play first. He's played outfield. So he's a guy who could DH or kind of rove around the field, giving guys days off. What's interesting for me is I, I still think there's a ton of upside for him. So I went to Baseball Savant and I looked at the player similarities chart. And when you bring up Morrell, I guess before I get into the player similarities chart, when you look at his numbers from last year, you know, especially on Baseball Savant, when they do the ratings on the various skill sets, Morrell is 85th percentile or better across all of Major League Baseball in expected slug, average exit velocity, barrel percentage, hard hit percentage, arm strength, and base running run value. Now, on the flip side, he's 25th percentile or lower in sweet spot percentage with percentage in K-rate. I don't think any of that's a surprise. He hits the ball really hard, and he also strikes out quite a bit. The strikeout rate's probably been his biggest obstacle so far in his career. And when you look at his growth from 2022 to 2023, he had roughly the same number of plate appearances. He basically missed the first month both seasons. In 2022, he had a 108 WRC+, plus, 16 homers, 47 RBIs, uh, Slash line of two, actually, we'll get in the slash line of 235, 308, 435, a K rate of 32.2%, walk rate just under 9% for a 741 OPS. In 2023, you know, he had 429 plate appearances, but he hit 10 more homers. He had 23 more RBIs, 
Slash line was up across the board, 247, 313, 508. K percentage of 31%. So he dropped a little bit. There were there were times this last season where he looked much more comfortable at the plate, where he was laying off some pitches that he swings at a lot. The more he can do that, the better and more dangerous hitter he's going to be. His walk rate actually fell a tick, but 8.9% to, compared to 8.4, so not a big change there. 821 OPS, which is good. I mean, that you know, if you look at him as a third baseman, if he can put up a 821 OPS, that's going to put him in the top five or six third baseman of baseball. If it's DH, it drops a little bit, but he's still probably top 10. In 2023, he had a 119 WRC+. plus. So when, when you look at his profile, the power, the hard hit balls, the swing and miss, you go to Baseball Savant and you look at the player similarities based on offensive profile. And the top three names that Baseball Savant matches to Christopher Morrell are Giancarlo Stanton, Luis Robert Jr., and Nolan Jones. Now, Stanton's an 87% match, Robert's 81% match, and Jones is an 80% match. Some of the similarities are pretty obvious. Big power, tendency to strike out a lot. Doesn't mean Morrell is going to become those guys, but he's, when you break down the offensive profile, the way he hits the ball, the way he, he works counts, the way he swings and misses, those are guys he lines up pretty well with. And honestly, if, if I have a young player who's 24 and his player similarity chart lists those guys, I think we're in a pretty good place. I think he's going to have to to really get back to David's question. I think the way it's going to be resolved is I think he's going to be a Cub this year. I think he's going to get every opportunity to win the third base job out of spring training. And I would hope that they give him, unless they were to sign Matt Chapman, and I don't think they will, they should give him at least a good half season unless he's a total disaster defensively. Give him some time. Let him get used to the position. I know there are issues with his throwing motion. It's it's too long, but he does have a really strong arm. And I think, you know, if they can turn Nick Madrigal into a third baseman, I don't see why they can't do the same with uh, Christopher Morrell. So thanks, David, for that question. Next question is, is also Christopher Morrell related. It's from at BCal34 on X. Christopher Morrell 2024 stat line projection in terms of homers, RBIs, slash line. It sounds like Council could elevate him. So I just walked through his growth from 2022 to 2023. He's still 24. Um, the book on him is out. So, I mean, pitchers could still find more stuff, but it's not like pitchers are going to suddenly discover that he has a hole in the swing. I mean, he's it's his job now to be a little more selective, have a little bit more plate discipline, and just you know jump the hittable pitches and, and lay off wherever you can. He's, he's probably always going to have a high strikeout rate. That's just the kind of hitter he is but I would love to see if he could get that strikeout rate even down to like 27 28% that's going to make a huge difference so for me to try to project his stat line there are a lot of things that go into that so I'll lay out some key assumptions to start I'm assuming he's not traded and he stays mostly healthy I'm assuming that there's going to be some continued growth and skill development you know he's only 24 one of the other factors is will he find a position or will he kind of float around the field in DH being in DH, maybe counterintuitively, is actually a really hard position. You don't have time to go out in the field and think about something else besides that last at-bat you just had. So not every player can succeed as a DH. I think we saw Christopher Morrell struggle with it last year, but by the end of the season, I think he came around and was, was handling it much, much better. And then for things like RBI, you know, where does he bat in the order? Do the Cubs bat him towards the top? Is he batting more 6-7-8? So that'll kind of drive it. But... Those things being said, my projection is I think he's going to be in the middle of the order, probably 
four to six most of the time. I'm going to project him to get, you know, he's should not spend a month in the minor league. So if he stays healthy, he should easily get 550 plate appearances, which is a hundred plus more than he had last year. You know, I think that would project him to base his last year's pace would have projected him to 33 home runs over 550. And I think he'll get about 32. I'm going to say 85 RBI. That's the hardest one to really do anything with. I don't know who's around him and you can have a heck of a season. If nobody's on base in front of you, then your RBI chances are going to be down. And then for slash line, I think he's going to continue to grow. I think he's, but I don't think he's going to take a massive leap. I think he's going to be more or less a slightly better version of the hair we've seen. I think he's going to, you know, hit about 248, 250, 325 on base percentage. Last year he slugged 508. I think he's a slug around 510, 512. That's probably like an 835, 840 OPS and a WRC plus probably in the 125 to 130 range. That's a really, really good major league hitter. If we take a look at kind of, kind of try to bracket that and look at high end and low end, you know, on the low end, if he can't control the K rate, if he becomes less disciplined than he was last year, guy, pitchers are just not going to give him strikes. He will strike out a ton. He'll wind up playing less, and his numbers will be worse than 2022. I don't think that's hap- I don't think that's going to happen. He showed good numbers in Lidom. I think he's going to continue to work on the things that he's been working on. On the high end, if he drops that K rate, let's say he drops it even more than I requested it, trying to get down to 27, 28. Let's say he gets down to only 25%. That's going to mean laying off a lot of pitches. Probably means more walks, because if he's not swinging and missing at a bunch of junk, he has massive power. He hits the ball really hard consistently. So if he's laying off pitches out of the zone, he's going to increase that walk rate. And then at that point, you know, pitchers are going to be more likely to fall behind. I think at that point you could see him get up more like 35, 40 home runs. He could potentially get that OPS up in the 850, 900 range. I don't think he'll get that high this year, but you know, he's 24 years old and he definitely has those tools. So thank you. Uh, BCal 34 for that question. And now again, we'll we'll continue to stay on Morel. So Stephen G on X asked, would you trade Morel for Pete Alonzo if Alonzo agreed to an extension with the Cubs? For starters, I baseball doesn't have sign and trade, so I don't really know how the Tyler Glass now thing happened. Um, certainly anybody can be traded and then have an extension, but when it was announced that the trade was contingent upon Glass now signing with the Dodgers, I don't know, it's bizarre. Don't like it. But to answer this question, no, I wouldn't. I probably disagree from... Disagree with a lot of people. I'm not as high on Pete Alonso as a lot of people are. He is a really good baseball player. He has a ton of power. Absolutely no questions about that. But when you're talking about trading Morrell for Alonso, I'm going to assume this is a straight up deal since that's a question that was laid out there. Uh, when you look at Pete Alonso, he is consistently in the lineup. He's played 150 games or the equivalent every single year he's been in the major leagues. The year he didn't play 150 was 2020 when he played 57 out of 60. So that's on pace for like 154. So. Um, he has huge power. He has a pretty manageable K rate. You know, he, he does keep that in the, kind of the mid-20s. Does not have a big walk rate, surprisingly. Like, he he puts a lot of balls in play. The guy with his power and his K rate, you kind of think the, a little bit more pitching around, you think he'd have a little bit higher walk rate. Then you look at the money. You know, they just settled on a the last year before free agency. He's going to make $20.5 million in 2024. And he's a free agent. He's also a Scott Boris client, which certainly reduces the likelihood that he would do any kind of extension. My my guess is he will hit free agency. But even if they if they agreed to do an extension, I think it's you know you're not going to get him to agree really for anything less than probably thirty million dollars a year. 
certainly minimum to sign before hitting the market, there's no way you're getting them for less than you know, 20, 27, 28 million dollars. And really here are my concerns. When you look at his numbers in 2023, he took a step back. Now, I don't know. I, I don't think he's going to age well, but that doesn't necessarily mean that's what happened in 2023. You know, the, the Mets had a mess of a year, total malaise in that entire clubhouse all season, traded off a bunch of parts of the deadline. Like it was not a competitive major league lineup at the end of the season. So, you know, his protection was down. So, you know, that's certainly a factor in it too. So, but he did take a step back. His K rate increased 4.2%. His batting average, which is not the biggest thing in the world, but his batting average fell off 54 points in the year where they got rid of the shift. And I don't think, you know, I don't know that Alonzo was a, a hugely shifted guy to begin with, but I mean, to, to fall that far now without the shift is kind of telling to me. His WRC plus fell 20 points from 141 to 121. Now it's still, you know, 121 is a good hitter. It's 21% above average in baseball. And he also posted the lowest war of his career and his on-base percentage fell 30 points. So you'd be making that trade right now, giving up a guy in, in Morrell who's on the rise and young and cost-controlled for a guy who's going to be very expensive if he does sign a deal. And last year was a dip. And I already thought he wasn't going to age well before he had last season. Because a lot of those bigger power guys don't necessarily age well. You get an injury that you know hinders your rotation and that swing at all, you, you can get zapped to power fast. The Cubs also have some young power potential with the corners with Michael Bush now, Matt Mervis, Christopher Morrell reportedly working at all the corner positions. They've got Owen Casey in the minors with massive power who's potentially projected to play first base. And they still might sign Cody Bellinger. Certainly, I think if... You know, Cody Bellinger signs with the Cubs. I don't even know that Alonzo is long-term a factor for the Cubs anyway. I think I'm going to guess the Mets probably make a push to re-sign him. But with with all given all those things, and you wouldn't be able to get Alonzo to sign anything less than probably a minimum a six-year deal at something close to thirty million dollars a year. I don't know why you would give up Morrell at this point, who is not as good a hitter as Pete Alonzo is certainly. But I could certainly see in two or three years a place where, you know, Morel's rise kind of goes past Alonzo's fall. So this could prove to be a horrendous take and, you know, Pete Alonzo could keep this production up for years and years to come. But no, I would absolutely not make that trade. But thank you for the question. So Alex on X submitted three different questions. I'm going to take his first one here. I'll keep his other two grouped down, grouped up later. Alex asked, how did you like the Michael Bush trade and where do you see his future position? So, you know, that's a really good, I think this trade is a really good example of what, of good farm, a good and deep farm system can do. The farm systems have one job. The job is to make the major league team better. And you can do that by taking talent, developing it and turning those prospects into productive major leaguers. Or you can turn them into players that other teams are interested in and trade those prospects for pieces you can use now. And so this trade essentially is trading future for present. That is that is the core basis of this trade. The Cubs sent uh, Jackson Ferris, who's a popular young left-handed pitcher. I was high on him. I think he has a has potential to be very very good. He's also 19. He was just drafted out of high school in 2022. And new draftee Zaire Hope, who's also just out of high school. He was drafted out of high school in this past season. 
and the Cubs were able to convince him to go pro instead of going to play in the ACC at North Carolina. And so these are two guys who both seem very talented. I think everybody is very high. Ferris, he was pretty much every list I saw over the last year had him in the Cubs' top 10 prospects, probably second, third, fourth pitching prospect, depending on what list you look and win. And Zaire Hope wasn't that far along yet, but he seems like a really athletic, super talented player. Plays the outfield, has a lot of speed, uh, good arm, good bat. So those are two guys I'm very high on. But the Cubs turn that around and they get help for the bullpen right now. They picked up Yancy Almonte from the Dodgers, who's going to slot in the bullpen right now. He had a really, really good 2022. He did not have as good a year last year. So I'm sure the Cubs see things in him that they can work on in the pitch lab and get get him more back to that 2022 form. And, and the Cubs have had a good track record doing that, getting guys who have been successful in the past you know, back into that successful with threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. It's kind of framework or pitch mix or whatever they're working on. And they picked up Michael Bush, who we talked about a little bit earlier, top 50 prospect with the Dodgers. And so here's what I like about the Cubs right now, uh, like it for the Cubs right now. Amante slots in the pen. Bush, the Cubs get a powerful young hitter. He's a guy that the Dodgers have been high on. A lot of people across baseball are very high on, but he's blocked. I mean, that Dodgers team is loaded. So the Cubs now pick up a guy who maybe has the power of Mervis with a little bit better hit tool. And he should compete for the starting job right away. And as far as the pieces they gave up, even if Ferris and Hope are really good, n- neither of them are likely to re- get up to the major leagues before 20, 2026 or 2027. And that's assuming they stay healthy and, and go on a fast development pl- plan. It could easily be you know 2027 to 2029 before they come up. So you've basically time-shifted your prospects. You take a couple guys that you know you're out of depth, you know, the depth in the system coming up a while from now and trade them for pieces that can help now. That's the other piece. You know, they traded out of strength in the system. The Cubs have a lot of young arms that are look good and they're progressing through the system. They're also deep in outfield prospects. So, you know, giving up Zaire Hope and giving up Jackson Ferris don't really hurt them near, t- near term. Those were not pieces that were expected to contribute to winning Cubs teams over the next couple of years. Every trade has risks, so there's certainly risk in this one. The downside, the, the way this trade could work out badly for the Cubs is that, you know, Bush is unproven so far. So there's an argument to be made that if you're going to trade a prospect as good as Jackson Ferris, that you want to get somebody who's a little bit more established and, and has a demonstrated track record. So Bush has struggled in his small stints. There's no guarantee that's going to continue, but there's no guarantee he's going to succeed either, like we saw with Matt Mervis last year. So... You know, the risk in the trade is that Bush comes up and never really becomes a significantly productive hitter against Major League Pitching. Almonte might not be consistent. His track record in the past is up and down. So um, if the Cubs can't get him back to that 2022 form, then, you know, maybe he's anywhere from not a help in the bullpen to maybe actively, you know, a problem in the bullpen. There's also a chance that both Ferris and Hope, or at least one of them, goes and becomes a star later. Um you know, Ferris, I think, has potential to be, you know, number one, number two starter type. 
Obviously, that's a long way from here. There, every player has so much chance for injury, you know. But overall, I think this is a really good trade. I think it's a good trade for both sides, and I think everybody wants to win the trade. After every trade, you know, who won, who lost, there are columns about that. Um, everybody would obviously rather win a trade than lose it. But it's also possible, and there's nothing wrong with having a trade where both sides get what they want. The Dodgers have a guy who, I talk about this a lot, like prospects are basically, if sort of dehumanizing, but the prospects are perishable. You know, they can come up and be successful. Or if you have a really good player and there's no spot to put him in the major leagues, if you just keep him at AAA, I've talked about this with Mervis, if you just keep him at AAA and he doesn't get a chance to come up and prove himself and you don't trade him, eventually he's no longer a prospect. He's 28, 29, 30 years old, still playing AAA without really getting a shot at the major leagues. And that's, if you've got a guy who's talented there, that's a waste. If you can't use him, trade him. So the Cubs were able to get talent off somebody else's system, time shift that talent forward to help now. And the Dodgers used a guy that they really, frankly, have no place for right now. And in return, they got, you know, a couple players who may be coming up after some of the current stars on the team are gone. So um, I think it's a good deal for both teams. I think, you know, with the Cubs trading from a position of strength, I mean, if you look at the young starting pitching prospects the Cubs have up, Cade Horton, Jordan Wicks, Hayden Wisniewski, Ben Brown, Jackson Wiggins, and some others coming up. Um, you know, they don't necessarily have to have Ferris and lots of good outfielders. And the Dodgers, you know, they, they do a lot of good things with pitchers. So, you know, they may turn Jackson Ferris into a Cy Young winner. We'll see. But I think it, I think it was a good trade. I would do it again. And I think both teams are going to wind up happy. Thanks, Alex, for that question. Next is Jared, who sent this through the Sun Ranto Discord. This question is mostly about, he used Wisdom and Magical as an example. So, his question is really about if you have two players who all things being equal are about even, what, do I think most managers would err on the side of playing a power guy or a contact guy? And that that's the question laid out. Would, would you be more likely to risk a 0 for 4 with 4Ks in the hopes that he runs into one or uh, get a guy who's more likely to make contact and put a ball in play. And this is this is for a game against those tough starting pitchers when you ex- expect the game to be low scoring. So um, the, the easy answer is a total cop-out, and th- that's also probably the most realistic answer, but I'll go deeper. So the cop-out answer is it depends. So it depends on a lot of things. You know, is one player hot? Does one player have a better matchup with that pitcher? Um, is the handedness the same? Does, you know, situational, what do you need? But the core question really is, would a manager play more for contact or power? And in a lot of systems, the power often gets the nod. Guys who have more power get paid more money typically. They typically play more. It's not perfect. Obviously, you got your guys like Luis Arise, but if your hit tool is that good, of course you're going to play. If Nick Madrigal was hitting the 320, 330. A lot of people think he's capable of if he can stay healthy and stay in the lineup every day. It's a little bit different equation too. But when he's kind of in now the lineup, I think he's better when he's playing every day. But when there are some questions, you know, there are times where you might want to lean. So before I actually answer the question, some of the assumptions I'll work through. Let's just assume the two players are similar defensively. 
similar overall offensive player uh, profile outside of the power versus contact. Um, you know, no clear difference against that particular pitcher, that particular pitch type, pitcher type. Let's assume they're the same handedness. You know, if you're facing a tough lefty, you're going to want a righty. If you're facing a tough righty, you're gonna, that might be a day you play Miles Mastroboni. And I'm also going to use the current Cub roster. So I'm going to assume, you know, with the current Cub roster, I kind of think Morel's going to start at third base, but let's assume he's not. Let's say he's in that more that utility position. He's bouncing, bouncing around as guys need days off. So we'll assume it's a day Morel's not going to play third base and Bush is playing first and it comes down to Madrigal or Wisdom to play third. To make that decision, I kind of look at the guys who are going to be in the lineup. So, you know, the Cubs currently would get power from Morel and say a Suzuki, Dansby Swanson, some power from Ian Happ, maybe some power from uh, Bush and Amaya if they're playing well. You get more contact from guys like Horner, Talkman, then happen say also give you some pretty decent contact. So if it's a low scoring game, I would probably lean to wisdom. I'm generally not as high on Madrigal as a lot of people, but even that aside, I think if you think it's going to be a low scoring game, Patrick Wisdom's more likely to hit in the bottom part of the order. And I just don't, I, I think you get more potential gain from wisdom running into one, just hitting the ball harder, you know, scorching one through the infield, maybe getting something down the line for a double, getting one lifted up in the air for a sack fly or a home run. There's certainly every chance that Patrick Wisdom is going to go 0 for 4 with 4Ks, but I would probably, in that type of game where you think it's going to be low scoring, I would probably run the gamble on that home run. That's a good question. It's something to think about. I think that's one that, you know, David Ross world, I think it often came, went to the magical side, except for, I mean, obviously if Patrick Wisdom's on one of his heaters, you leave him in there until the heater's over. Um, but we saw what Ross did. Um, I'm not totally sure what council will do. It'll be interesting to watch. And I think it obviously varies by manager, but if, if I was in that position, I would err on the side of wisdom. So thanks for that question. Next question comes from Jacob Zanola on X or Twitter. Who is your favorite prospect in the Cubs system? Um, I love that question. It's a really hard question because I love them all, but no, I'll, I'll settle it down. I'll, I'll give two. I'll give one pitching prospect and one hitting prospect and, preface this by saying there are so many guys I'm excited about in the Cubs system. Some of them we've we've seen in Chicago. Some of them we haven't yet. Also, the next several questions are going to involve prospect talk. And if you really want good prospect talk, I work that stuff in. But my podcast focuses on primarily the major league team and the prospects that are very close to major league ready. You really want some prospect nerdiness. I mean, Greg Huss, Greg Zumak, those guys are your, those guys are just money for you. So, uh, both friends of the podcast, they've both been on. Um, they both do great work in the prospect world, and they have way deeper information on the prospects than I do. But uh, I will definitely take this question because I think right now, when we look down at the system, I think there are guys we're clearly excited about to help the Cubs over the next uh, one to two seasons. And the two guys that stand out to me are Kate Horton and Kevin Alcantara. Two things I've always loved in baseball players is dominant pitching. Um, I've always had an appreciation for the Greg Maddox, the Kyle Hendricks, the, you know, the, the guys who don't throw super hard, but can still get hitters out because they pitch really well. Good pitching is fun to watch period, but man, it's a different level when there's somebody with that, just got that gas on that fastball, the dominating slider, you know, the power guy out there that just can, you know, rack up the K's strut around there a little bit. I mean, 
you know, Kerry Wood's an all-timer for me, and, and I forgot to mention in the beginning, and with, with him and Ramos Ramirez going to the Cubs Hall of Fame, that was really awesome. I'll probably talk about that uh, later this year as they get inducted, but, I mean, there's been no Cubs pitcher more fun to watch for me than Kerry Wood. When he's on his game, you never knew what he was capable of, and you knew it could be great. And that's what Kate Horton brings. We're so excited. Um, he's you know got excellent command on his fastball. It's, it's wild. Last year, he tore his way up through the minor leagues. His fastball is not, sits 95-97. He's got cut ride movement on it, and he throws that fastball to 70% strike rate. He might actually want to pull that back a little bit when he gets to the bigs just because guys are better hitters. But, you know, that command is fantastic. You hear pitchers say it all the time and all the time and all the time. But the one thing that the first time I really remember it standing out was in 2003 when Kerry Wood beat Greg Maddox in game five for the Cubs to advance to the NLCS. And they were asking Greg Maddox about matching up with with Wood. And he, and he said that 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 day Wood had his really good stuff. He had command on the fastball and he said, Maddox said, if you can command your fastball, that's the best pitch in baseball. And Kate Horton seems to have that. So as long as he can stay healthy and he can, you know, continue to have that command, man, I'm really excited to see him come up. He's got dominating type stuff. He projects as a guy who could turn into a future ace, which is there are some concerns. I mean, he's he's had health problems. He was injured for most of his college career. He only pitched 53 innings his last year of college. And then last year they ramped him up to like 89 innings. So there's going to be a ramp up period this year. Like I would not, we'll talk more about him later, but I would not expect him to be certainly in the opening day rotation, but I think he's going to be available in soon. I think we're going to see, see him pretty early this season. And then Kevin Alcantara, he's a little bit further away. I think we might not see him until uh, next year, unless he maybe gets a September call up this, this year. Both guys are 21. So both Cade and Kevin Alcantara are really young and really promising. But Kevin Alcantara, man, he is just that big athletic dude, kind of in the vein of, I don't want to compare the games necessarily, although I think there are a lot of similarities, but you know, O'Neill Cruz and Ellie, Ellie De La Cruz for the Reds, like those two guys are big and fast and powerful and exciting, and that's what Kevin Alcantara is. I mean, when your nickname is the Jaguar and you're 6'6", that's pretty serious stuff. He's got big power. His, his power has been coming along over the last couple of years. You know, he really needs to get more time at, at double A and above. He hasn't really been there yet, but he's put up some really good numbers in Myrtle Beach where it's not a, not exactly a hitter-friendly ballpark. And, you know, it, when you're six foot six, you've got long arms, long legs, a lot of moving parts in that swing. So he's going to have to continue to focus his development on making sure that he can get ready to come up and be able to handle that high velocity, those high, high velocity fastballs. But man, is he excited to watch? When you watch his, see his clips, um, it's unbelievable. He is so exciting, and I can't wait to see him with the Cubs. There are a ton of other guys I like, but those are the two that popped to mind immediately when I saw that question. So, thank you, Jacob. Next question comes from Daniel on X. When do you think Horton and Shaw reach the bigs? And thoughts on Jefferson Rojas having a potential Camonero Chorio type breakout season? Really good question. I think we're all excited. And I certainly hope all those answers are soon, soon, and yes. But let's get into a little more detail. I really think there's going to be every opportunity for Cade Horton and Matt Shaw to make it to the bigs in 2024. Matt Shaw was the Cubs' number one draft pick last year, came out of Maryland. Played shortstop in college, probably projects more second baseman. Uh, they're working him at third base a lot right now. Obviously, that's the place to be. And they've asked, 
he's been interviewed and asked about that. And obviously the answer is you want to play where there's opportunity, you know, Dansby Swanson kind of has shortstop on lock right now. And, and Nico Horner's not going anywhere at second base. So if Matt Shaw is going to hit his way, he's going to hit his way in the lineup. If he comes up, he just crushed the ball last year, had a great second half of the season after getting drafted, ended the season in double a, which is kind of ridiculous. But I think, you know, and once you're in double a and Horton finished there too, once you're in double a, you're seeing major league caliber stuff. You're seeing major league caliber hitters. That's where, not all the top prospects play AAA, but all the top prospects play AA. And there's probably a higher concentration of them in AA. You still get some of the guys who are more raw and still trying to figure out plate discipline or command issues. But as far as seeing stuff, seeing velocity, seeing movement on pitches, you won't see as much as you see in the major leagues, obviously. But you know, once you get to AA, you're seeing it. One thing potentially holding them back, but I think both are good enough to just force their way on, is neither, neither guy is on the 40-man roster yet. So for them to get a call up, that means the Cubs would have to you know, designate somebody for assignment and you know move them along or trade them or something. And I think that's both those guys are good enough. That's that's not going to be what holds them back, but it is worth noting at this point. I think both guys are going to start in Double A or higher, which, like I said, puts you in the range of a call up. I think you have to obviously assume health and performance. Kate Horton's had some injuries in the past. You know, if if either guy is hurt, you won't we won't see him in twenty twenty four. Or if they come up and, and they struggle next year. You know, neither guy has a long track record in Pro Bowl. So if they have their struggles and it takes another year, so be it. Like, as Jed always says, you know, development is not linear. You don't automatically progress because you progressed before. But both guys have shown all the key core things you need to be successful. With Horton, I think the biggest concerns are workload. So I've mentioned already he threw 53 innings in college. He threw 88 last year. I think they're going to have him on an innings limit this year, probably more like 120, 130. If you go back and look at Justin Steele, that's more or less what they did with him. He had Tommy John surgery in 2020, came back a little bit in 2021. And then in 2022, he threw about 120, 130 innings. Then last year, he got up to 175. And now at this point, after throwing 175, again, assuming he stays healthy and all, I think he's just a guy who can eat innings now. So the Cubs are going to be careful with Horton. I mean, you got a guy with that kind of nasty stuff. You don't want to be reckless with his arm. So I think that 120, 130 cap, and he could get there a lot of different ways. He could potentially start slow and kind of stay in extended spring training and maybe kind of ramp his season up more starting in May, kind of chop a month off the schedule so that you can save some of that work. The other option is he could pitch a little bit less frequently. Like last year, he went through the season because they were, it was typically shorter outings and he had a lot of, you know, pitching once a week. So he would have kind of, you know, on a seven-day cycle as opposed to a five. Cubs could do some of that. They could also, in the second half of the season, come up and use him somehow in the bullpen, like they did with Hayden Wisniewski in 2022. And that might be especially if the starting rotation is going well. If, you know, Justin Steele's having another good year, Tyone rebounds, Shota Imanaga's good, Hendricks is still throwing well, and, you know, Wicks or Ben Brown or, or Wisniewski are throwing well in the fifth spot. Bullpen may be the place where the Cubs have a need or, or use for his stuff. So there are a lot of different ways, but I think that'll be the, the cap. So if he stays in the minors and the major league pitching is really, really good and there's not really a place for Cade, if his pitch count or innings count starts getting up there, then maybe that might be a reason the Cubs don't see him much late in the season. But I, I think we'll see him this season. I, as long as he's healthy and performing, I would be surprised if he's not called up by like mid-June. Shaw's a little bit different. I think he's 
obviously pushing for playing time. That bat played last year, and I think if you really break down the component parts, I think it's going to play. But we don't even know what this team looks like yet, for sure. I mean, are, are they going to sign Cody Bellinger? Are they going to make any trades? Are they still going to have uh, Wisdom and Madrigal on the roster? Are they going to have Christopher Morrell starting at third base? Are they going to sign Matt Chapman? I mean, if they sign Matt Chapman and Cody Bellinger, we probably we, we almost certainly won't see Shaw in 2024 unless it's due to injury. So my best guess is I don't think they'll sign Chapman. I think they will. I still think the Cubs are going to wind up with Bellinger. And I think that he'll Bellinger will be kind of a hedge with PCA in center field and PCA in center field. You know, if he's good, then Bellinger maybe plays more first base or if Bush is killing it and PCA struggles, then maybe Bellinger's playing a lot of center field. He can, he's a versatile guy. He can play all over the field. He can play both corner outfields. He can DH, he can play first base. So like he'll be in the lineup and he'll play somewhere. I imagine they're going to give Morrell every shot to win the third base job. But if Shaw keeps hitting, they're definitely going to be... Look at what the Cubs did in 2015 and 2016. There were tons of young guys coming up. Kyle Schwarber, Wilson Contreras. They didn't necessarily stay up the whole season, but somebody gets hurt. They come up and they start for a couple weeks, and then they go back down. And I think that that may be what we see with Shaw. If there's a spot for playing time... Bring him up and let him do his thing, and then if the starter gets healthy and returns, then maybe he goes back down to the minors. Because I think the main thing with Shaw is you're going to want him playing every day somewhere. Um, now, maybe by the end of the season, if you want his bat around on the bench, something like that, then that's different. But like, you don't want Matt Shaw as a bench player in Chicago this year. He needs to be starting and playing and getting his four or five at bats every day. So I think we'll see him as he's a little bit less likely than Kate Horton. It's a little less clear where his position would be, but I, I do think we'll see them both this year. Jefferson Rojas, that's a really interesting question. So he's 18 last year. It was his first year playing stateside. And what was really impressive to me is not only did he really start to take off last year, but he really, I thought, developed and kind of grew throughout the season. You hear Greg Huss, Greg Zumak, Huss especially, love talking about this guy. He put up really good numbers in Myrtle Beach. Again, as I mentioned, that's a very pitcher-friendly park. And he's got speed. He looks like he's going to have power. I don't know about the defense at shortstop. But, you know, he sounds like he's average-ish, decent arm. Um, but, like you know, Swanson has shortstop on block for a while anyway, and the Cubs have other shortstops in the system. So the really good thing about drafting and signing shortstops is that they're good athletes and can play other places. So... Maybe Rojas moves to second or short or plays the outfield. He's athletic enough, I think, to do it all. But the kind of jump you're you're talking about is him going from a good prospect, an interesting kid we like at 18 that projects a lot of tools, to all of a sudden he's a guy, you know, Jackson Churio especially. You know, the Brewers just signed him to a a long contract, a long-term contract, and he's never even played in the bigs before. So, you know, that's a big jump, and that's a – you know, a, a big jump for a kid to take, and those jumps are rare. So the question is, you know, he's 18. He's only had one year ball in the States, and that's not an easy process in itself. You know, when you come from another country, you're here. I don't know him personally. I don't know specifically his language situation, but, you know, English is not his first language. He's in an entirely new country. He's in new cities. He doesn't have his familiar people around him. That's a really hard thing to do, and a lot of guys struggle with that adjustment, and he really seemed to handle it well. So I, I think that bodes really well for him moving forward. I think the biggest question with him is, uh, 
plate discipline and ability to handle velocity, which is kind of the question with every young hitter that comes through. I think he has the capability of doing it. And whether he will, again, like the guys who make that Jackson Churio type jump are very rare for a reason because that's a really hard jump to make. But he's only 18. So, you know, even if he, I, I think he's going to kind of explode this year. Will he make that kind of a jump? I probably wouldn't go that far. I think he's going to get to double A. We may see some of what we saw with Alcantara when last year when he moved up. You know, there, there's some struggle for a little bit. You see a different level of pitching. You're in a different kind of park. And I think we may see that with Rojas, but I mean, all the tools seem to be there. So I think he's going to wind up having a good season. I think he's going to be, he's going to continue to rise in, in prospect lists. I think almost every, almost every prospect list right now has him in the Cubs top five. I think he's going to be, especially if a couple guys graduate off the prospect list, I think he's going to be in everybody's top two or three. I think he's going to be, by the end of the season, could be a top, you know, top 30, top 20 kind of player doesn't necessarily mean he'll be as poised to make that Jackson Churio jump, but you know, Jackson Churio right now is like top prospect in baseball or second. So depending on where you look, so I don't know if he'll jump that far, but I think he's going to have a really big year and he's one I'm really excited to see. So thank you for that question. Now, Alex from X with, when you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The last two questions that he submitted, um, who are guys that you wouldn't touch in the farm system unless you got a star player in return? So that's a good question. And I see that come up a lot. Like so-and-so is untouchable. I don't believe in untouchables. I don't think anybody is ever untouchable. Um, I think some guys are really, really expensive though. Um, I think not only are some guys expensive, there are some guys where it is very, very difficult to find appropriate value in a trade. And so right now I would say the three guys that stand out to me as the hardest to find good value in a trade, which I still would not say they're untouchable, but it means it's going to be very hard to come up with a trade that's worth it for the Cubs to make that deal would be Cade Horton, Matt Shaw, and Jefferson Rojas. And I'll, I'll go through each guy and why. So Horton projects as a potential ace. We talked about him a lot already in this podcast. And that's really rare. You look around baseball and... Every team has a number one starter, so in the sense there are 30 number one starters. But realistically speaking, in any given time in baseball, there are about 15 kind of true aces. Guys who would be basically number one on any team at about any time. And so sometimes one team will have more than one of those guys. So those guys are rare. They don't come along very often. And when you have one who is not only capable of being that, but he's 21 years old, got electric stuff, it'd be really hard to find equivalent value. I mean, you'd really have to be... You know, Kate Horton still has all of his years of control in front of him. He looks like he's a guy who could pitch in the major leagues right now. So in order to give up that potential and all that control, you'd have to get a guy who's basically already established as a star, but also has years of control at a pretty reasonable reasonable value. So you wouldn't be trading him for a prospect. You'd have to trade him for somebody who's already established as, say, a, a top one or two starting pitcher, or potentially a guy like Luis Robert. I've seen trade rumors of White Sox kind of shopping him. He's not cost-controlled in the pre-arb sense, but he signed an extension with the 
White Sox is very team friendly. He's, he's very good price, and I think he's got four years of control left on that deal. You know, he's a superstar caliber player that you could get right now for a guy that does still have question marks. Like that, that's what it would take, and that's a very hard deal to make make a deal out. Uh, very hard to make a deal out of because the Cubs are going to be reluctant to do it. We know how risk averse Jed and Carter are. But also, you, you'd have to wind up throwing multiple players in there, and that kind of sets the balance, and it's just it's really hard to do. So while Kate Horton isn't untouchable, I think he's a guy that's almost impossible to trade and get value for at this point. Jefferson Rojas is a little bit different. I mean, he is years probably away from the major leagues. And maybe, as we talked about in the last question, maybe maybe he makes that Jackson Churio jump and can play next year. But again, that that's rare. It doesn't happen very often. So... Something that Greg Huss talks about a lot, I'll cite him again, friend of the pod. When you deal prospects, you want to trade them at a point where they have a lot of value. So ideally, you'd want to max their value. So if there's a guy that that is highly rated, scouts love, but there's something in his game you're not so sure about. You're starting to see something that uh, maybe you're not wild about. At that point, when he's young and hasn't been exposed, that's a really good time to trade because you can get that top prospect value potentially. On the flip side, you can trade a guy, you know, once he's made his burst, he, he's not in the major leagues yet. There, there's no major league warts on his game. There's no book on him in the bigs yet, but he's established as, you know, top level prospect. Good time to trade. You can get a ton of value. Jefferson Rojas is kind of right in between. I think he's going to make a jump this year to become one of those top guys, but I don't think he's there yet. So to trade him now, I think... You you could certainly get a good deal. You you could get good talent back in a trade that involves Jefferson Rojas, but I think you'd kind of be trading him short. I think you know a year from now he's gonna have a lot more value than he has now. So it's kind of a weird time to trade him. Yeah, you know, on the flip side, somebody like Matt Mervis, kind of now is the time to trade him or use him. And I've talked about this a lot, but you know if if he spends another year at AAA without really getting a shot at the bigs, all of a sudden then he's you know he's starting to look like twenty eight twenty nine heading into a potential rookie season and that just doesn't carry the value that a younger prospect does so I think for Jefferson Rojas it's too early to trade him and then Matt Shaw I see him as kind of in between Horton and Rojas he's near major league ready and he's really got projectable tools so you know you're about to you know within the next year 15 months you're probably going to start his major league clock but then he's got all those years of control there is still some risk. And because of that, you know, he's only had half a year of pro ball. I think he's a guy who probably kind of like Jefferson Rojas probably has more value next year. So he's kind of both, you know, really projectable at the big league level very soon, uh, which means, you know, you're going to have to get something really good back from him. That's both ready to play now and, and better, maybe not better, but ahead of where Matt Shaw is with something close to the amount of control, um, you know, and you're going to be making the, trying to make that deal happen in a time when there are other teams that might you know, push back and say, we've only seen him for half a season. I want to see more time in double A and, and whatever. So I think, I think those are three guys who, while I certainly would not say untouchable would certainly be not only really expensive, but actually really hard to find the right kind of deal that would get value back for the Cubs. You know, on the flip side, everybody often says like PCA, love PCA. I think his, uh, I think he's going to have a good year this year. I think his projections are really, really solid. I think that glove 
I think he's one of the best defensive center fielders in baseball right now. So if you put him out there to play center field every day and he doesn't hit much at all, he's still going to be a two to three win player just on his defense, defense and speed. If he hits at all, you know, all of a sudden he's a four five, six win player. And if he hits a lot, you know, he's a superstar. And one of the things I see a guy I would compare him to would be Kevin Kiermaier. So I bring that up sometimes on, on Twitter or social media and kind of get some pushback, but cause there's this idea that, you know, PCA is number one prospect for the Cubs, top 10, top 15 in baseball, pretty much everywhere you look and everybody wants superstar. And obviously that's the ceiling, you know, his, his ceiling is a guy who's going to be in the league for 15 years and be a superstar. His floor is a guy, his floor is actually below Kevin Kiermaier, but his, his floor is a really good defensive center fielder who doesn't hit much, but has a ton of value. And he probably has barring injury. PCA is going to have a long career in the major leagues either way, because his defense is that good. Um, but a guy like Kevin Kiermaier, you know, he had some six, seven war seasons with Tampa. He's made a, f- I think this will be his 15th season in the major leagues. That is a really, really good baseball player. And he made most of that on defense. Um, so, but with him, there's not a lot of downside risk to PCA and there's a ton of upside potential. So you kind of have that trade market right now. He would be expensive. So I think it's, you know, the, the Cubs aren't going to trade him. Let's be realistic. Um, but if there was a deal where they wanted to make something happen, I think you have a good handle on his value. I don't think his value has ever been higher than it is right now. I don't think it's likely to be higher next year. I think it's likely to be probably about the same. And then at some point, even if he's really good, the trade value, you know, starts lessening every year that you have less control left. We saw that with, you know, with one Soto, except I guess the Yankees kind of overpaid, but you're going to pay more for a guy with two and a half years of superstar play left before free agency, like the Padres did getting him from the nationals. than you know, a team would pay to get him for one year as a one year rental. So that's a good first question. Second question is which prospect do I think is going to break out? I think the big three candidates are Rojas, Alcantara, and Moises Ballesteros. Well, those are three candidates. That's not the one I'm picking. But all three of those guys, I think, could have big breakout seasons. The one I'm really looking at for a big breakout, and I don't mean breakout like get to the major leagues. I think a guy who's going to suddenly become get on everybody's radar this time next year, where maybe he's not right now, is Drew Gray. So he's a left-handed pitcher. The Cubs drafted him in the third round in 2021. And then he had Tommy John surgery in 2022. So he came back last year, had the kind of mixed bag success that you would expect for a guy coming off Tommy John surgery, getting everything back. He has a high spin fastball in the 93, 94 mile an hour range. And there's a lot of talk about that with Imanaga. So Imanaga has got that high spin on his fastball, which makes it play up. It's that effectively rise ball. It doesn't really rise, but it doesn't drop the way hitters expect it to. So it, it stays up. He's got good peripheral stuff. Obviously he's, he's a few years from the major leagues, but I think he's a guy that if he stays healthy and kind of reestablishes himself on that path, I think he's a guy who we're going to start talking about a lot. So Alex, thanks for those questions. Now, the next question comes from, what is the perceived floor and ceiling for Matt Shaw offensively? When do you think he's getting called up, and how do you think his third base defense will be? I've kind of already hit on some of this. I, I think we'll see Matt Shaw this year. But as far as the the floor and the ceiling, I think his bat seems to play really well. Obviously, he tore through the minor leagues. He showed all the things he showed at Maryland. He showed pop. He showed the ability to hit to all fields. He showed gap-to-gap power. 
we'll learn a lot more this year, assuming he faces double A and better pitching. Um, so I think that gives him a pretty high floor. I think his bat is going to translate. He's got, you know, good strike zone awareness. He doesn't chase a ton. He's not a high strikeout guy. You know, he's, he'll take a walk. So I think, you know, I, th- I think when you're evaluating somebody's floor, there's always the assumption of health and performance, but we're talking about floor. So um, health could always be a question. I mean, Brendan Davis was the next shoe in guaranteed prospect coming up and he's been completely derailed for two years with back injuries. Now he's still only 24. There's still time for him to battle back, but it's completely changed his prospect status. So if Matt Shaw were to get hurt, have some sort of chronic problem, that's going to drop his floor. Otherwise, though, if, if we just look at his game and assume he's healthy, the one hedge with him only having a half season of pro ball and not all of that being at the double A level is at some point, every hitter gets a book on them. They're, they're, even the greats have some small hole in their swing that you can sort of ex, exploit for a while. Or you can exploit it occasionally. It's just really hard to do. They'll find his. And so far, they really haven't. And so when they find it at some point, whether it's in double A, whether it's in triple A, whether it's after he gets to the big leagues, he's going to have to adjust back. And we see that all the time. Some guys can't adjust back and they just don't make it. So his floor would be a guy who, when they find his holes, you know, can't adjust and effectively doesn't become a, a major leaguer. I think that's a low probability. I'd probably put that at, you know, 10 to 15%. Hitting major league pitching is really, really hard. So, you know, there are no guarantees in life. The ceiling is a lot of fun to think about because the ceiling, you know, his hit tool should translate. I mean, he good plate discipline, good ability to get bad on ball, can handle velocity, can hit to all fields. Like, that's going to play. And if he can stay healthy and he can develop, and as they find those holes in his swing, if he can adjust and start to close them down or work around them to, you know, minimize their damage. I, I see a lot of potential. I think he could definitely be a guy who it's 280 plus he'll, as long as he's taking walks and has good plate discipline, he's going to have a good on base percentage. He's going to have good slug. If nothing else, because of his gap power, he's going to rack up a ton of doubles. I don't really see him ever as like a 40 homer guy, but I definitely see him in the, you know, the, the camp of all the guys the Cubs have right now. Guys like, happen Dansby and Saya who can hit you know 20 25 home runs pretty much every year I think he's got that kind of pop and so you're looking at a guy that you know ceiling could be you know 850 and 900 OPS that's a really really good baseball player and a really really valuable bat to have in the lineup as far as position goes you know how good can his third base defense be I know he's working on it a lot and as I said earlier you know he played shortstop in college and while it wasn't the SEC, Maryland wasn't the national championship caliber team. Maryland was a good baseball team and he played shortstop. You know, if you can play shortstop at the high D1 level, um, you're a really good athlete and you can play a lot of other positions. I've seen him projected more for second base, but as mentioned earlier, like the thing Matt Shaw is focused on is where's my opportunity? His opportunity right now appears to be third base. Um, I think as far as when you look at the defense, there's everything from footwork and reading the ball off the bat, hands, you know, glove position. I think all that stuff is going to be solid. He was maybe not a superstar defensive player in, in college, but he was he had a good reputation defensively. So I think he's going to have all that stuff down. There are some questions about arm strength. He's maybe kind of an averageish arm, which is why I think a lot of people are thinking second base. But if the Cubs can take Nick Madrigal and make him into a, a 
useful and actually defensively good third baseman. I don't see any reason why Matt Shaw can't be. So I'm pretty optimistic there. But the biggest thing with him is his bat. If he makes it up, it's going to be because he hits his way to the big leagues. And if you can hit baseballs, they're going to find a place to play you. That's just how it always is, how it's always going to be. So I'm optimistic. Again, Shaw's floor is still, you know, still extreme bottom floor. I think realistically like a 50th, 60th percent outcome is that he comes up, is not a superstar hitter, but can be a productive hitter, you know, 250, 260, kind of 750 OPS, like a guy who can take a walk and put, you know, hit some balls in play, hit some balls hard, but maybe doesn't quite, you know, certainly doesn't get to superstar level. But I think his, his ceiling is really high. So thanks for that question. From Harold Strickland on X, where do you see our young arms by the end of the season and how well do you think they will or won't perform? There are a ton of arms in the system and, you know, Greg Huss and those guys could give you a ton of info on all of them. But I'm going to focus on some quick hitters on some guys who are in the bigs already or should be soon and all guys who are young and kind of haven't established themselves fully yet. So I'm going to focus on Ben Brown, Bailey Horn, Cade Horton, Luke Little, Daniel Palencia, Hayden Wisniewski, and Jordan Wicks. For Brown, I think, you know, he came over. He looked really good last season. He looked like he was going to be the next guy up from Iowa. He got hurt in August, and that kind of derailed the rest of his season. I think he's going to come in and have a chance to compete for that fifth starting job in spring training. I think it's likely that he'll start the season at Iowa. I think they're going to want to keep him stretched out as a starter, so I think they'll send him to Iowa versus putting him in the bullpen right away. But I think that may change as the year goes on, depending on how good or healthy the bullpen is, how good or healthy the rotation is. I think he'd be down there in Iowa ready for the next call-up. Bailey Horn is a lefty they got in the uh, Ryan Tapera trade with the White Sox in 2022. He's a lefty out of the pen. He's got a lot of potential. Last year, he struck out 59 and 53 innings at Iowa. He struggles with command sometimes, and that's why he didn't make it up last year. But he's now been added to the 40-man roster, so that tells me that the Cubs are either high on him or putting him in a position to, you know, get a shot and either succeed or not. So I think he'll start the season at AAA, but I think he's probably a guy, you know, has all three of his option years left. So I think he's a guy who will ride that Des Moines, Chicago shuttle a good chunk of the year, get some work. I would say I don't see him filling a, you know, a leverage role of any kind unless, you know, he really earns it. I think he'll be up and down. I think he'll get low leverage spots and, and get exposed to the major leagues, which is probably exactly where he should be. We talked about Kate Horton already. I won't spend a lot of time on him, but I think we'll see him by mid-June. I think they're going to have a 120 to 130 inning cap on his in his count this year, but I think we'll see him. Luke Little is a guy I'm really excited about. I think he's going to step up big time. I think down the stretch last year, I think the Cubs arguably should have used him more. He looked at times dominant out of the pen. Very, very small sample size. But he has massive stuff. He's a giant human being in spite of his name. And I think he's got all the attributes to be a big back of the bullpen guy. I don't think he's going to start back of the bullpen, but I think he's going to be a guy who you see in the you know sixth, seventh inning, depending on matchups. And I think he's going to be successful and kind of up his profile throughout the year. Um, I could see, you know, this year I think Edward Azalea is going to be the closer. I think Luke Little's absolutely a guy that has closer potential. Um, so I'm really excited about him. Uh, Palencia, I love his stuff. I'm high on him. I actually don't think he'll start the season in Chicago. I think he'll go back to AAA. He's got an elite fastball. He just, there's command. I mean, saying just with command is is kind of stating the obvious and it's kind of undercuts a key point. But he'll go as far as his command takes him. 
if he can command that fastball, if he can get that command back. He showed it at times. He made that debut in Milwaukee, and while some balls were put in play, it wasn't all strikeouts. You know, he threw two innings and got the win in an extra inning game. Um, if it wasn't the 4th of July, it was the 5th. I think it was actually on the 4th. And he had some games where he was in big spots and really came up big. But then there are other times it just, you know, the command just wasn't there. And his fastball, while it's, you know, could hit 100 miles an hour, if he doesn't command it, it's sometimes a little too straight. And major league hitters can catch that. So I think we'll see him throw some big innings in Chicago. I don't think we'll see it to start the season. And I'm optimistic about him, but not quite as sure on him as I am Luke Little. Hayden Wesneski, I think, is going to be a valuable piece of the Cubs pitching repertoire this season. And I'm not done with him being a starting pitcher. I think a lot of people have written him into a bullpen role, and that may be where he winds up, and I think he could be very good there. Um, But I still think, we heard Craig Council talk about it at Cubs convention. He's excited to see what Wesneski can do. What he needs to work on is something to get lefties out. He needs one more off-speed pitch that looks different to help get him get lefties out. He's already pretty dominant against right-handers, struggles against lefties. So that's same spot Edward Alzelay was. And Edward's figured out a way to get through it. Edward also had a ton of injuries, which limited his ability to kind of stay stretched out. And he, he's been able to stay healthy as a reliever when he wasn't as a starter. So I think Wisniewski will get a shot at the fifth starting spot. And then the Cubs will have to make a choice on whether they want to keep him stretched as a starter or put him in the pen. My guess is they'll put him in the pen and, and use him as a multi-inning weapon. And then he can be the guy that maybe steps in next if somebody gets hurt. Um, but if he doesn't wind up as a starter, put him in the bullpen. Again, especially, right? I mean, he can just go blow right-handers away today. I think he's definitely a guy who can be a good back of the bullpen arm you know he probably won't start there i'll probably start as a multi-inning guy but i think he'll have a ton of potential in the back end of a bullpen his stuff is nasty and then last but not least jordan wicks he made a heck of a debut last year you know really threw well across six or seven starts um i think he's the guy that's going to win the fifth starting job out of spring training but I, it's not going to be handed to him I think he's gonna have to earn it so it's going to be a competition with him Hayden, but I think he's going to get through the season. I think he's assuming he stays healthy. I think he'll be in the rotation all year. And I think he'll give you numbers that you'd expect from a young pitcher who doesn't project to be an ace. I think he's going to give you kind of number four starter numbers. He'll be up and down a little bit, but he's going to get his seasoning and grow as a pitcher and, and learn how to you know go through a full season of Major League Baseball. I'm excited about seeing what he can do. So thanks for that question. Last couple questions deal with kind of looking ahead about the Cubs this year and beyond. So Bulls 2024 on X. What are my record position predictions for the Cubs or for the Cubs for all the teams in the NL Central? So if we walk back through last year, last year Milwaukee won 92 games in first place. Cubs were second at 83 and 79. Reds were 82 and 80. Pittsburgh was 76 and 86. And St. Louis was 71 and 91. I think we're going to see, I think Milwaukee is going to fall. I think St. Louis is going to rise. And I think Everything else is going to work in the margins. I never thought the Cardinals were as bad as their record last year. I I was pretty much astonished all through this. I know it was pitching. I didn't expect their pitching to be that bad. But I still, even with the pitching they had, I was surprised, constantly surprised at their record. Um, I think they're naturally poised for whether it's regression to the mean or progression to the mean. Um, they've already added three new starting pitchers. I think they're going to be much improved this year. Um, are they winning the division? Good. I don't know. You, they are coming from 71 wins, so it's it's not an easy leap. 
The Reds have a Reds and Pirates both have a ton of young talent. The Reds have also made some really interesting additions this offseason. So I'd expect them to continue to hang around. And I think, you know, Pittsburgh's coming. They're not as aggressive. They did just have a role to Chapman, which was kind of wild. I mean, I saw a, a Pirate fan tweet yesterday something to the effect of it's kind of the worst storm for him because he doesn't like Chapman and some of his off-field issues. So the team is now less fun to cheer for. They're spending money, but maybe not intelligently. And then they're kind of doing just enough to say, hey, we tried without really trying. So I get the frustration for Pittsburgh fans. And I guess they're investing in somebody they can probably flip at the deadline. So when I when I look at that, you know, next thing I look at is what what are people thinking? Um, so I made my predictions and I'll reveal those last. But then after I made my predictions, I went to look at the 2024 betting markets. Fan graphs and some of those don't have all their projections out yet, obviously, because rosters aren't finished. But right now, in terms of wins, betting markets have St. Louis on top at kind of 85, 86 wins. Cubs are next to 84, 85. Reds are then at 81 to 83. Milwaukee at 78 to 79. And Pittsburgh down at 72, 73. I actually think the Central is going to be a strong division this year. There's not going to be one team out there dominant like the Dodgers or the Braves. I don't think anybody's going to run out to 95 or 100 wins. But I don't think the last place team is going to you know lose 92 games either. So some of the assumptions I have to make, obviously I'm, I'm making this on rosters as they stand today. And I did a podcast a few weeks ago, I think it was episode 64, but it was called what if the Cubs do, or what if they do nothing? And it was projecting like, what would the season look like if they didn't make any additions? So that was before the Bush trade. That was before the Imanaga signing. And I had the Cubs at that point at kind of the 82 to 84 win mark. I mean, I think they are a good team right now. They should certainly be above 500 and could do more. And they just need to add more talent. And then since that time, they've made the Bush trade and they've added Imanaga. So I think that raises their profile more. So I think the Cubs right now are starting to look at that. And the other assumption I'm going to make is based on past history, if the Cubs and Cardinals are in the race at the deadline, they're both going to add. One might add more than the other, but I think they'll both make moves to add and, and improve their teams. And if Milwaukee does fall the way I think they're going to fall, you know they 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 won't have Brandon Woodruff this year. They lost Craig Council. They have not made a lot of significant additions this offseason. They're not a team that typically spends. So I think they are they're relying on young players. They're hoping Jackson Churio comes up and gives them a huge season. Sal Frelick came up last year. They're hoping he'll continue his growth. But if they are not seriously competing, they're going to trade. They're going to sell. So I think that could make their um, record ultimately worse than what you might think. So my predictions for this year right now, as the teams are set, I think the Cubs are going to go 89 and 73. I've got the Cardinals at 87 and 75. Reds at 83 and 79. Milwaukee at 77 and 85. And then Pittsburgh in last place at 75 and 87. So I think the Cubs right now probably are the sort of almost paper favorites to win the division. Um, but it's not clear. So if you're one of those people who set a goal in the offseason for the Cubs to be the clear uh, leader in the Central, they're not there yet. They have more additions to make. Um, I don't think the roster is an 89-win ro- roster right now. I think with Imanaga, they're probably more up in that 85 to 87 range. Um, but I think if they're at that point, then I think they're going to add at the deadline, which will pick them up an extra couple wins. Um, same with the Cardinals. I think the betting markets actually are really pretty good right now, which go figure. That's how Vegas makes money. 
Um, last question from Brian on X. This was the hardest question by far, and I don't know that I'm going to answer it specifically in the way he wanted, but I think it's a really interesting question. So he asked, what was my five-year Cubs prediction year by year? And he gave me examples like playoff team, World Series team, whatever. And we know the the playoffs are a total crapshoot. It's a short postseason tournament, and there's not a lot, um, you know, you can't be predictive. I mean, nobody had the Diamondbacks going to the World Series. So I'm going to focus on what I think I will expect from the Cubs in each of the next five seasons. So I think 2024, we've talked about that a lot. I think they should be a playoff team. They're a team that should compete for the Central Division title. Um, they're not going to be as good as the Braves or the, or the Dodgers. They're probably not going to be as good as the Phillies. But they should absolutely compete for a postseason berth, and they should get there. I, I will put playoff expectations on 2024. 2025, they lose Gomes, Hendricks, and Smiley. But they, again, have a lot of talent coming up through the system. Some of that money goes off the books. They'll get the money back that they're paying uh, Barnhart and Mancini. So they're just gonna, they're going to have plenty of money to spend. There's gonna, it's going to be a pretty strong free agent class, in, at least on paper, based on who is likely to be there now. They should spend. They should improve. Kids should be coming up. They're not going to hit on all the kids, but there should be enough hitting critical mass that they get some gain. That's going to be a year where I expect them maybe not to completely close the gap between Atlanta and L.A., but I think they should be able to make up some ground. And maybe instead of being that kind of fringy 88 to 91 win team that competes in the Central and and for a wild card, I think that's when they can start getting up to 92 to 95 wins. Um, be a solid favorite in the division. Virtual, not they're in a playoff locks, but be a team that everybody expects to be in the playoffs. Um, and that then you're a team that could get hot and make a run. Um, 2026 is kind of the back end of the year with the core that they're building right now. They've got Ian Happ, Nico Horner, Seiya Suzuki, Jameson Tyone, all on deals that will expire in 2026. It's not to say some of them won't get extended or whatever, but right now those four guys, that's the end of that window. I think Jed is committed. I think he really wants to win in that time frame. So I think if... 2025 and 2026 payroll should be up. They should be really competing. And I think certainly by 2026, if Jed is doing his job and he's carrying out the plan that he and the goals that he's set, they should be in a position to be a World Series contender. Now, getting to and winning a World Series is really hard. The Dodgers have been arguably the best team in baseball for 10 years and they have one ring and it was in a Mickey Mouse season. But the Cubs should be at that level of competition by that point. If not, things have gone wrong, and Cubs probably should be looking at new ownership or new management. Twenty twenty seven. If Jed does what he talks about doing, smart decision on top of good decisions, you're bringing new talent in every year, and some talents leaving every year. That having those contracts expire after twenty twenty six should not be a huge deal. Now that may be some bigger money coming off the books if they've been at that point over the CBT for three years. Maybe 2027 is a year where they pull back a little bit like the Dodgers did last year just to kind of reset and get under. But by that point, they should have enough good young talent up there that's cheap and controllable that they can probably do that and still win. You know, And then I think in 2028, again, you know, if sustain, I don't know what the roster looks like in 2028, but if sustained success is the goal, then you know that's that's where we are. And they should be, at that point, they should be perennial playoff contenders. You know, 
there are going to be bad years. There are going to be years where you just get crushed with injuries, you know, all that sort of thing. But, you know, the Cubs should be in a position where they're in the playoffs four years out of five, where they're seriously competing to make a run in the playoffs, you know, two or three years out of five. Um, and so I think the next five years should all be playoff years. I think especially building 2025 and 2026 should be serious playoff years. And probably they should be there in 2028 also, because if they reset in 2027, then you know they should have money to spend and go back at it in 2028. So I want to thank you guys for this. This was a lot of fun. It's a little bit long, um, but not too bad. I've had longer episodes. Um, love the questions. I wasn't sure what I would get calling out for a mailbag episode, but these questions were good. Always feel free to drop questions in my DMs, hit me up, you know, tweet at me, something like that. All the social medias, I'm out there. Drop comments on YouTube. Um, I would love, I can mix questions in every week. I can do periodic mailbag episodes, but uh, love the interaction, love the thoughts, and I really appreciate you guys are listening. I really want to thank all the listeners who submitted questions. And thank you to you for joining me today. If you like this episode, please drop a rating and review wherever it is you get your podcasts and share the episode with a friend. Just a few seconds from you gives me great feedback and helps other Cub fans find the show. You can find me on Twitter, Instagram, TikTok, Threads, Blue Sky, and YouTube, all at Cubs PS Plus. And check out the Patreon page, patreon.com slash Cubs PS Plus to help support the show. As always, the theme music for this podcast is Prospect Park West by Jerry McCoy. This is Mike Waller, host of the Cubs PS Plus podcast. Every day with Cubs baseball or talking about Cubs baseball is a great day. Go Cubs!